The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Revelation chapter 2, as we begin this new study of God's Word together, I posted on my Facebook uh, this logo, this branding that we're going to use for the next few weeks to ask folks what it meant, and uh, I got a lot of different answers. Uh, Most of them were incorrect, but uh, it's the seven letters to the churches is what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks as we study God's Word. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The angel of the church in Ephesus write. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured for my name's sake. You've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent, do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, as we embark on this new study, as we look at uh, letters to the churches, I pray that you would cause us to reflect upon TBC and how we might honor you by obeying you in these messages. And then, Father, I pray for us individually that you would speak to us and that you would change the Spirit of God and make us doers of the Word, not merely hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we begin with the first letter. Imagine reaching into a postal bag, pulling out a letter. It's written by Jesus to a specific church, and that's what we're going to look at for the next seven weeks. Basically, these are letters written to historical places in Asia Minor. We'll look at a map in a few seconds about what Jesus wanted to tell the churches. So that's where we're headed. If you do not tend to your marriage, your passion can wane and grow cold over time. Amen? I mean, if you don't tend to your marriage... Your passion will wane, and you'll go cold over time. I was reminded of that when I read the following story. It was about uh, Bubba, a West Texas cowboy, and his wife, Mary Sue. Uh, They were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And at that wedding anniversary, uh, that night, she turned to him when everyone was gone, and she said, Bubba, let's admit it. We're not happy together. We, We don't get along well. We bicker and we quarrel. We're Christians. We don't believe in divorce. So I've decided what we must do. <clears throat> we should begin to pray that God would call one of us home. <laughs> and then I'll go and live with my sister. <laughs> I would suggest you that's a pretty cold, impassionate marriage. Would you agree with that? I, I mean, uh, if we do not tend to our marriage, our passion will wane and grow cold over time. The same thing that happens in marriage happens in the spiritual life. Over time, uh, the spiritual life can grow cold and impassionate if we don't tend to it. Our lives will grow that way. We will drift away subtly from the Savior. And so the calling of the church of Ephesus, or the calling that we'll see today to the church at Ephesus, is that they would return to their first love. So we're going to dip in the postal bag. We're going to open this first letter. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say to that church and to us. 
we're going to ask the question, how can we keep this from happening in our church? How can we keep this from happening in our lives individually? The church of lost love. Well, let's begin by looking at a background to the letters to the seven churches so we might understand a little bit before we look specifically at the church at Ephesus. If you look up here, there's a map. The map shows you specifically what we're looking at. This is the Isle of Patmos. It's in the Aegean Sea. Greece would be over here, Italy on the other side of the Adriatic Sea. You've got the Aegean, Greece, the Aegean Sea, Patmos. This is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And these are the seven churches that we're going to read about. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This morning our focus is on Ephesus. Now the reason Patmos is important is because this revelation is given to the Apostle John. The Apostle John was one of the inner three of Christ's disciples, along with his brother James, along with Peter. And John is the author of the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Peter. John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. It would be an ancient uh, Alcatraz, if you will, as a parallel to our nation. It was a place where the Romans would send prisoners, political and otherwise, so that they might live out their sentence until their sentence was served. And so John, according to church history, was sent to the Isle of Patmos. We know he was there, but he was sent there because he would not recant of his faith in Christ. Now, the Isle of Patmos is an interesting place. It was actually the beautiful place. We had the opportunity to go there when we led a Paul's Journeys trip several years ago, and this is what it looks like. It's a beautiful place. It's a rocky outcropping, if you will. It's six miles wide by 10 miles long. So it's not a very big island. You could traverse that island, walk that island, matter of a day very easily, except for the up and down. But it's actually a beautiful place in the midst of the Aegean Sea, one of the Greek isles that you read about, that you see in travel journals. And it's a beautiful place where John was exiled. But I remind you, when you were exiled in that day, there was nobody to cook food for you, nobody to bring food to you, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very difficult place to be. When we read these letters, we read about the church, and we read several things. There are conditions that exist in the church then and now. These are actual historical places. And I would say they represent each church that exists today and have for church history. I think we'll find TBC smattered in each one of these churches. I think we'll find personal things that apply to us in each one of these churches as well. The letters are very similar. They begin with the word of approval, then they go to an accusation, and then they conclude with an admonition. You might think of it this way, a commendation, a condemnation, and then a correction. So so there's a commendation or words of approval. There's a condemnation or words of accusation. Then there's a correction or an admonition from Jesus to each of the churches. Now, John is in exile. Persecution has begun among believers. In, you know, the world in which we live, we see the same thing happening today. Times are not much different in some ways. It was said at the Council of Nicaea in 280 AD that not a single delegate, less than a dozen delegates who came to that particular church council had not lost an eye, did not walk with a limp, or did not have a hand that had been severed because of persecution. We see in our day and age the same thing happening. I mean, we see believers, for instance, in Oregon, the shooting, I understand, having read the news accounts, I don't know what all is there, but one of the questions was asked whether or not this person believed in God, and if then he was shot, she was shot. We see the same thing with ISIS, beheading believers. So persecution takes place then, persecution takes place now. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And so we recognize persecution happened then, and we were warned it would take place now. So as we look at the background, that's what we're looking at. Now, I know a number of you women are taking Revelation at BSF. You're doing BSF right now and gone through it. 
And I talked to both the BSF teaching leaders Sunday morning, Sunday night. The ladies are teaching that. And they said, I asked them what was being taught. And they said, well, it's about Jesus. Revelation is about Jesus, his glory, his majesty, and his return. Not teaching a specific end times uh, scheme, but, but that it's about Jesus. And that's, that's accurate. The book of Revelation is about our Savior. When you study the entire book of Revelation, we're only going to look at chapters 2 and 3, but if we were to look at the entire book, it's a, it's a book about Jesus. It's about his glory, his majesty, and his return. And the one thing we're going to see when we look at each of these seven churches is that Jesus is the one who writes this, and Jesus is the one who offers a solution to the problems they have. And may I suggest to you that the same thing happens today, should happen today. Hey, we, we come here because of Jesus. We, we are here because of Jesus. And when churches struggle, when they have issues, when they have problems, Jesus should be where they turn for, for, for answers. Jesus doesn't say, go and find a church consultant, et cetera, et cetera. He says, turn to me. And so that's what we do when we study the book of Revelation today. So by God's grace, we come to this book, we look at it, we recognize it's about Jesus. It's about our Savior who has given himself for the church. He loves the church. He died for the church. He died so we can have eternal life, and now he's going to correct some of the issues that are there after giving them words of commendation. So now we look specifically at the church at Ephesus. It's a background to the seven churches. Now let's look specifically at the church at Ephesus. Church at Ephesus was an interesting church came from quite an interesting city. Ephesus was called the Supreme Metropolis of Asia. One of their governors named the city the Supreme Metropolis of Asia. That's a big title in it. And the reason he did that is because Ephesus was a place of geographic significance. It was a place of economic influence. It was a place of political influence. And it was a place of, finally, religious corruption. And let me show you what I'm talking about. It was a place of significant, uh, significant geography. Ephesus became economically prosperous because of geography. If you look at this, this is a rendering of the amphitheater built at Ephesus. Uh, behind that is a library. Behind that you see a harbor. The, the amphitheater actually still exists in ruins today. It looks like this. If you look to the left over here, this is what it looks like. It was big enough to seat 25,000 people. Imagine the construction that took place and the people who did that in that day and age with our cranes and everything else we had simply by manual labor. To the right are the ruins, modern day ruins. We were here, we walked on these steps as well. These are steps of the old library. And so when we look at Ephesus, then we see this is what it looked like and you can see why it would be geographically significant. Number of things you see in that picture. First of all, it had a harbor. <clears throat> it had an inland harbor so ships could come in. The other thing you don't see here is that within a couple of miles of Ephesus was a river. And so goods could be imported into Ephesus either by river or by, by sea, by, by the Aegean Sea. The other thing you don't see in this picture is that three highways intersected Ephesus. Three highways came there. These highways went into the mainland of Asia. And so Ephesus was significant because it had these highways through which things could be moved over, especially goods. And so because of its geographical location, it became economically prosperous. Not only that, it became politically influential. <clears throat> it became politically influential because the governor of Asia Minor chose Ephesus to be the place to headquarter. And so his headquarters were there. And so that's why he would call it the supreme metropolis of Asia. And, and it was also not only geographically significant, not only was it politically influential, not only was it economically wealthy, but it was religiously corrupt. It was religiously corrupt. It was religiously corrupt because of this. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis or Diana, the Greek and, Hebrew, or Greek and Latin words. 
And, and God, she was a goddess of fertility, of fertility. So you worshipped her so you could have crops, you worshipped her so you could have babies, you worshipped her so you could have animals born, the goddess of fertility. Well, somehow, this religion became so corrupted and so paganized that eventually what happened is there would be thousands of priests and priestesses who would engage in prostitution and sexual orgies and call it worship. That's what they did. They came together. They had orgies. There were prostitutes there, priests and priestesses, and somehow they would call that part of their worship service. So here's the miracle. The miracle is to this geographically significant, economically prosperous, politically influential, religiously corrupt city, a church is born. That's the miracle. The miracle is in the midst of all this, God births a church. If you jot down Acts 18 through 20 in your notes, we took a look at that a few months ago when we're studying through the book of Acts. On Paul's second missionary journey, we find a church's birth in the midst of this pagan society. Now, we talk about how bad our world is, and it is. I mean, issues like same-sex marriage, issues like sex slavery, issues like abortion, all these issues are all over the map, and we have to deal with them. This was a very corrupt society as well. This was a society that did stuff like this and called it worship. So it's to this little group of folks in Ephesus that Paul writes to. Now, here's the neat thing. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, he spent two years at Ephesus. So Paul spent two years discipling the believers in the church, Acts chapter 20. Not only did he do that, but after he left, he sent Timothy back to be their pastor. <clears throat> we read about that in First and Second Timothy. And not only that, but church history tells us that John, who the revelation is given to, he made his home, you know where? Ephesus. Now, I want you to think with me. At the cross, Jesus looks down. He sees Mary. Remember what he tells Mary about John? Woman, behold, your son. And he tells John, behold, your mama. So John was given the responsibility to care for Mary. Early church history tradition tells us John and Mary lived in Ephesus for a season. So you show up at a home church on Sunday morning. You show up at this church, and you think, this will be a fun place to worship. And you take your seat, and this little old lady comes and sits next to you, and it's Mary, the mother of our Savior. And trailing behind her is a guy named John, who has been three years with Jesus. And it's time for teaching to take place. And maybe it's during the week, and now you're part of a small group, and you look around, and Here's John and here's Mary and a guy named Timothy walks in. You talk about a killer small group. <laughs> Man, that's the church at Ephesus. You know, sometimes we don't think about all the details, but that's the reality of life then. In this place that was religiously corrupt, economically prosperous, politically influential, geographically significant, a church is born. And Jesus begins to shine in a whole lot of darkness. Well, when we go to the particular words of Christ to the church at Ephesus, we begin in verse 1. He says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. So let's begin right there. Who's the angel? Who are we talking about? What are we talking about? 
I mean, when we talk about angel, the Greek word means messenger, so he's writing to the messenger in the church at Ephesus. So it may be a specific, scholars debate about this, may be a specific angel who's given guardianship to look over a church, could be. Personally, what I think it means is talking to about a human messenger, a person who's given this letter to take to the churches. Each, each church has a different messenger, maybe the same messenger to each church. It's a circular route, but it's a person who delivers this letter. Either the bishops of the church or the elders of the church or the leaders of the church. I think that's who he's referring to in each of these letters. He's saying, here's the letter, read it to the church. Then look at verse 1. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. And you're thinking, I knew the book of Revelation was hard. I mean, why don't you just come out and say what you're talking about? What are these stars and what are these lampstands? I'm confused already. I mean, the book of Revelation is hard, right? I mean, it's got all this Star Wars stuff, and we can't understand it. And so you just want to stop. Here's the good news. Back up to verse 20 of chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, Jesus is talking now. And he says, uh, the seven stars are the what? The angels of the seven churches. So the seven stars are what? Angels, messengers. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven stars are what? Angels. The seven lampstands are what? Churches. And you thought the book of Revelation was hard. You already got it down. Look at that. So he says, I'm writing to the church at Ephesus. The one who walks around is the one who has paid the price for the church, who's omnipresent in the church, who's continually present in the church, who's with us right now. That's the Savior. And he speaks words of commendation or words of approval to them. So he opened the letter. Jesus is saying, church at Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know your ergē. I know your energy. I know the things you are doing. And so I would submit to you the first thing Jesus is saying is, the church at Ephesus, you're a serving church. I know what you're doing. I see the energy you're, you're using. I see the things you're doing. I know your works, your good works. You're serving the community, serving one another. I had lunch two weeks ago with a pastor friend of mine, two and a half weeks ago, Neil. And he called, wanted to have lunch with me. I said, sure. He's heard about our Justice for All series. And he said, Gary, I called because... This week, I've been to Feed My Sheep, Helping Hands, and Hope Pregnancy Center. He named three specific places. And the first person I bumped into was somebody from your church, at all three. And he said, uh, he said, when I think of Temple Bible Church, I think of a church that serves our community. And I thought, that's a great compliment. To God be the glory, great things he's done. I pray TBC will be known as a serving church. I, I pray that we'll have our fingerprints everywhere for the glory of God. That because of our love for Jesus, because of what our Savior's done for us, we can't help but serve. We want to be like our Savior. Our Savior said this in Mark 10, 45, For the Son of Man came not to be, what? Serve, but to serve, to give his life. And so if we want to be like our Savior, we will be about serving other people. We won't live our life wrapped up in ourselves. See, when you live your life wrapped up in yourself, that's a very small present. But when you give your life and invest your life in others, when you serve others, you're like the Savior. John Piper, in one of his books, said, 
the greatest challenge for the church in the 21st century is to turn consumers into servants. The greatest challenge is to turn consumers, people who are used to, hey, what's in it for me? Give me, give me, give me. I got, I need, give me, into servants. Walking to a room, walking into a place and saying, how can I serve? How can I serve? The Apostle Paul knew the beauty of this. In 1 Timothy, he writes to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus, who's given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, what? To serve. He said, the great, I, I am so grateful. I'm thankful to our Savior because he considered me trustworthy to serve. As believers who walk with Christ, know Christ, name the name of Christ, our life should be filled with serving one another. I could give you example after example after example in our body of people who serve. People open their homes every week to small groups, people who are teaching our kids, people who are with our youth, people with our college kids. I could give you examples of mercy team who bring meals to people, uh, go-to guys who work on uh, fix-it projects around uh, homes of people that can't afford it within our body, uh, folks, who, guys that stay after, church, after Bible study on Thursdays to fix things around the building. I could go on and on. People who greet you at the doors, people who usher in the building, people who pass out bulletins, and on and on and on. Is TBC a serving church? I pray we are. Let me personalize it. Are you serving? Who are you serving? Where are you serving? Because if you're going to look like the Savior, you're just not going to be a consumer, you're going to be a servant. We're going to be like Jesus. We're not going to model servanthood. We're going to be servants and exercise servanthood. But he goes on. He says, I know your deeds or works. I know your toil. Toil, it's an interesting word. It's a word that means to work or labor to the point of exhaustion. The specific word that's used in the text here means to work or to labor to the point of exhaustion. It stresses the depth and degree of their labor for the Lord. He says, you work, you sacrifice. You work to the point of exhaustion. It's like the farmer who works all day long from kin till camp, from sunup to sundown, and just throws himself on the couch when he gets in because he can't go anymore. He labors to the point of exhaustion. It's like the mom who chases a toddler and a baby around all day long, labors to the point of exhaustion like the construction workers on our new building back there. Watch them as they work on the slab. They, they labor to the point of exhaustion. It, it, it's like the teenager who spends three hours video game and laboring to the point <laughs> of exhaustion. You, you get the point, don't you? He, he says you've labored away. You've sacrificed. Is TBC a sacrificing church? I mean, I'm asking myself those questions about us as a body. Are we a sacrificing church? You know, we, we do some things. If you look around, our building is nice, it's adequate, but it's not a cathedral. We wanted an adequate building, a functional building, a nice building, but we weren't going to build a cathedral. We wanted to sacrifice in that area because we want to give 20% of our money every single month right off the top to missions. We just—it's—it's it's not right or wrong for somebody else. That's just the sacrifice that we made. If you know anything about our staff team, there are eleven of us on full-time pastoral staff in a church that has a few thousand people on a weekend, and we sacrifice in some ways because what we want is to equip you to do the work of ministry, so we don't take ministry out of your hands, but so we can do ministry together. Church our size has way more staff than that typically. 
We sacrifice in some areas. But we sacrifice, hopefully, we, we can be known for that way. We will sacrifice for the Savior. You gave almost $10,000 to a church in California to people we never know. People will never meet this side of glory because we're a sacrificing church. What about you individually? Do you sacrifice? Me and Gary, you know, it's hard to give up one night a week to be in a small group. That's a huge sacrifice, isn't it? One hour a week to rock a baby. Huge sacrifice. Um, I've, we've got folks in our body who have passed over promotions because they're shepherding small groups and they feel like God has called them to do that. So they'll do without the promotion to stay here. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we have folks on the mission field right now who are trained, equipped to do things that would make a whole lot of money here. But they're sacrificing. They're sacrificing for the group. Some of you are sacrificing. Some of you are so generous with the money you give to support people on the mission field, to support our body, that you sacrifice and do without in certain areas. Is that true for you? What do you sacrifice for the sake of the Savior? I know your deeds. I know your labor to the point of exhaustion, he says. I know how, how you do these things. What's it look like for you? Does your checkbook represent, does it reflect sacrifice in any way? Remember the story of the pig and the, uh, and the chicken? So here's my question for you. Are you a pig or are you a chicken? So Gary hadn't preached in a month. Man, now he's off his rocker up here. You're a pig or you're a chicken? A pig and a chicken are walking down the street, and there's a sign, and it says, needy family, uh, hungry, furnish a breakfast. Would you furnish us breakfast? Would you supply breakfast? So the chicken turns to the pig, and he says, I, I think we ought to give him breakfast. What do you think? And the pig said to the chicken, for you, it's just a gift. You give an egg. For me, I give a leg. It's a sacrifice. How do you give? Your time, your talents, your treasures to the Savior. Sacrifice anything? He goes on and he says, I commend you not only for being a serving church and a sacrificing church, but a steadfast church. Look at what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance. I know this. You, 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 you persevere. Then look at verse 3. You, you've persevered, endured for my namesake. You haven't grown weary. You, you're a church that's persistent. You haven't given up. You're being smashed by the society around you. You, you live in the midst of this pagan, immoral culture. There are people that won't go to your shops anymore because you name the Jesus there. You've been kicked out of your families because you name the name of Jesus. You're a church that's ridiculed in the midst of the, the town you're in because of the name of Jesus. But you persevere. You don't give up. You continue on. The word persevere there means to hold up under pressure. They had staying power. They didn't stop. One of the greatest things, of one of the greatest ways I can encourage some of you today is not to quit. Not to quit the spiritual life, not to quit that marriage, not to quit that friendship, not to quit the church, not to quit, you name it. Because some of you are on the verge of quitting right now, any of one of those things. And I'm saying God has, he commends them for enduring, for persisting, for not giving up, for continuing on. 
And then finally, he says, you're not only a serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church, but you're a separated church. You separate yourselves from false teachings and from false teachers. You are doctrinally orthodox. You've got it. You can discern between truth and error. I mean, when false teachers come, you test them, it says in verse 2, and you find them to be lacking, you find them to be false. And then in verse 6, you hate the Nicolaitans. They were a group of people teaching false doctrine in the first century. He says, you have it all. I mean, you're a church that serves, sacrifices, you're steadfast, you're separated. I mean, you're pretty amazing. And I look at that list and I say, hey, I want to be part of that, don't you? I mean, that's the church I want to join. If I had Walking Island join that church, I want to join that church. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, a church that serves, sacrifices, steadfast, separates from false teachers and teaching. You say, amen, glory, hallelujah. That's the church I want to be a part of. And I would say, whoa, cowboy. Not so fast, girlfriend. Stop the presses. Because this church had a significant crack in their foundation. And the admonition, the admonition is this. I have this against you. You've left your first love. See, you do all this stuff. You sacrifice and you serve. And you're steadfast and you're orthodox. But you've forgotten how to love. You've left your first love. Jesus had a whole lot to say about love. So they shall know know you're my disciples by your what? Love for one another. If you jot down your notes, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes these words, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Rich young ruler came to Christ and he said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you love your, you love your Lord your God and you love your neighbor. Love is everywhere in the scriptures. The church is to be about love. I'm going to be about love. You're to be about love. Jesus came. He, we love because he first loved us. For God so loved the world, he gave us Jesus. And so we can be a sacrificing church, a serving church, a steadfast church, a separated church. And being an unloving church. Or you can be a sacrificing person, a serving person, a steadfast person, an orthodox person. But if you lose your first love and not doing it in love, all we hear is boing, bong, bong. And we look at this and we say, this is something we don't want to be guilty of. We want TBC to be a loving church. We individually want to be loving. <clears throat> we don't want to be accused of this. Now, honestly, I wish the scriptures filled in the blank a little more. He says, you've left your first love. First love for what? First love for Jesus? First love for fellow believers? Or first love for the unbelieving world? Which is it? My answer is yes. Yes. First and foremost, I think it's love for the Savior. I, I, I get that because of the admonition he gives them, the correction he gives them in the, in the next verse. But I, as I read this little section here, it seems to me that they've drifted. 
<clears throat> there was a time when they were once passionate for the Savior. They had this first love, this, this, this love for the Savior. They, they, they couldn't wait to be with him and couldn't wait to serve him and couldn't wait to sacrifice for him. But now that love has grown distant, it's grown cold. Just as in a marriage, it can wane and grow cold. That's what's happened to them. He says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. So you're saying, Gary, man, my heart's beating out of my chest. That's me. I was once way more passionate for Christ to, to walk with him, to meet him, to serve him, to honor him, to sacrifice for him, but I've drifted away. What's the solution? What do I do with that? Well, it's a good thing you asked that question because we want to get it right and the scriptures give it to us in the next verse. In the next verse, he gives the admonition. He says, first of all, I want you to remember. Look at verse 5. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember where you once were. When I first started walking with Christ, I met Christ as a young boy at age 5. I get serious in a walk with Christ at age 18. I'm on the LSU campus. I couldn't wait to get up the next morning to go to the Episcopalian Chapel on the LSU campus because I knew Jesus was waiting for me there. I get my Bible, I get my notebook. There was never anybody in that chapel. It would just be me. Occasionally there was a girl that came in there, but typically it was me by myself in there. I, I, I would go. It didn't matter if it was raining, if it was sleeting, if it was snow. Well, it didn't sleet and snow there in Baton Rouge, but, but it, it rained. It rained a lot. So in the rain, sunshine, didn't matter. Come hell or high water. I'm headed to the Episcopalian Chapel. I can't wait to meet Jesus. Bible open, notebook open, meeting my Savior, praying with him, spending time with him in a quiet time. Man, when I first saw one I was Rambo with the NIV. Man, I was sharing with everybody. That passionate first. You remember your first love? Not in, not in junior high and high school days, but the spouse you're married to right now. The person you're falling in love with right now. You remember those days? I, we remember those days well. I'll never forget the first time we kissed. We could both tell you where that was. We decided we would be pure in our relationship. I'm going to tell you, for me, that was hard. I got red-hot Italian blood flowing through these veins. <laughs> I wanted to honor the girl I was dating, Bev Huff. And uh, we dated for two months, three months before we kissed. When we kissed, the world came to an end, I'm telling you. It was like, whoa, baby, what was that? I mean, rocket shot and... I mean, it was like we were falling in love. We knew we were falling in love. You know, there's more to that story. I'm not going to share it all with you, but she ditched me after a little while, and I got her back, so I lost the battle, won the war. <laughs> Kissed it more for me than her, I guess. But that's, that's, that, that ruins the illustration, the story. But, I mean, we both remember that day, don't we? We talk about it sometimes. We actually were on the LSU campus a few years back. We drove to that place, parked there, and started smooching right there with two kids in the back seat. <laughs> Man, it's just fiery. First love. If you tend to that marriage, you fall deeper in love. If you don't, you grow distant. That first love for the Savior, come to Christ. You want to meet Christ, walk with Christ, serve Christ, honor Christ, love Christ, be in the Word, be in prayer. If you don't tend to that, just like in marriage, your heart becomes cold. 
and you become distant and you begin to drift. And he says, I have this against you. You've left your first love, but remember, remember when you first fell in love. Remember those times. And it's just not conjure up, but it's remember so that you can have a heart and a passion and desire to go back there. And after you've remembered those things, repent of where you are right now. Repent of the distance that's come between me and you. Repent of the loss of this love. Repent means to turn away from wherever you are. Change your mind. Change your direction. And he says, then I want you to repeat the things you did at first. Oftentimes in marriage counseling, we come to a couple and say, you know, your, your love needs to be rekindled. So I want you to think about the things you did when you first fell in love. I want you to start doing those things again. Like dating. Like talking to one another. Having conversations with one another. We used to go, there was a park in Baton Rouge we'd go to, and we would swing for hours and just talk. Just swing back and forth. I hate to talk on the telephone. I am not a phone guy. I would stay on the phone for one hour just listening to Bev breathe on the other end. He says, remember those days. Repent of where you are. And then do the things you did at first. Get in the Word. Walk with me. Pray. Serve. Sacrifice. Do those things. Because if you don't, here's the warning. The end of verse 5. If you don't, I'm going to remove my lampstand. What's the lampstand? The church. If you would have come to us, with us to Ephesus a few years ago, we could not find an evangelical church in Ephesus. The lampstand had been removed. Gone. Not there. By God's grace, there are church planters in each of these cities now. But the lampstand of God's blessing has been removed. To us, TBC, hey, you can be a serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church, and you can be a separated church. But if you're not doing it with love, with the love for me and love for one another and love for the unbelieving world, I'm going to remove my blessing. Oh, God, I pray that we're always a church of love. First and foremost for you, then for one another, then for the lost world. Because we don't want the blessing that you give removed from us, ever. Ever. God, I pray that I'm a man. I pray that you're a man, that you're a woman who never deserts at first love. Because you can do all the right things without love. It's a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And then he gives a promise. That's a great promise. The promise found in uh, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the church Spirit says. The church is to him who overcomes. I'll grant to eat in the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Granting to you eternal life. The one who overcomes has eternal life. Now, if I'm you, I, I, if I, or if, if I'm asking questions, I want to know, so what's an overcomer? Who's an overcomer? How do I overcome? Are, are these like the Navy SEALs of the spiritual life of the church? Or are these like the Delta Force guys? I mean, who are the overcomers? Well, 1 John chapter 5 spells it out for us. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? You're an overcomer. What do you know, Jesus? Don't miss what he's saying here. The priority of the church is to love. To love him, to love others. For some of you, you recognize this sermon's about me. 
I once had a passion to meet with the Savior. I once had a passion to spend time in his presence. I once had a passion to serve, to give. I used to be that way. But right now, either I'm distracted or I've gotten off kilter or I've become a prodigal. This morning, the first two hours, I asked folks to do a really difficult thing. If you're that person, the person who has to look in the past and say, this is me. I've lost my first love. There was a time when I was more intentional and intense in my walk with Christ. There's a time when I was more in love with him. There's a time when I served him more willingly. I'm asking you to do a hard thing this morning. We've had dozens of people the last two hours stand up so I could pray for them. So if the Spirit of God has touched your heart, and this is you, there is a time when you have to you look at your life now and say, there's a time when I walked more closely, more intentionally, more intensely with the Savior. I'm asking you to do a brave thing right now. I'm asking you to stand up so I can pray for you right where you are. Right where you are. These are brave people, courageous people. You melt my heart. And it's my prayer that that flame, the passion that you once had will be rekindled. Father, I pray for each one of these dear brothers and sisters, people I love, some I know well. Oh God, I pray that you would restore the first love. I pray that you restore passion, desire to meet you, to be with you, desire to serve you, sacrifice for you, desire to stand steadfast, to persevere, be separated from that which is false, all done in love. So God, I pray for each of these brothers and sisters. They boldly stated that before us today, and there's some sitting who were not courageous enough to stand. I pray for them as well. They rededicate themselves to you. Now let's all stand together as I continue to pray. Father, for each of us, it's our desire to be known as a people who love. And it's our desire for TBC to be a place that's known for love for Jesus and a love for one another and a love for the world. And so, Father, I pray that that reputation would sound forth in our community and even among the nations as we go so that Jesus would be exalted to his glory, through his majesty, for your kingdom, forever and ever. And all the saints said together, amen. Bless you, you're dismissed.